I sent it to them. I said, hey guys, in case you're wondering, the, the sermon, you know, it's going to be on Proverbs 26, 11 this week, and I'm waiting for reaction. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And like in the middle of the week, I said, did you guys even look at Proverbs 28, I mean 26, 11? Because it's a really good verse. This is the verse, uh, by the way. Uh, As a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool represents his folly. You know, like good luck finding songs on that, Stas. Actually, I don't want to see the songs based on that. But this is a book, this is a scripture in the Bible, and it's actually a really, really good one. And uh, it came up because I was reading through the passage this week on what happens in Abraham's life. I thought, man, we've been here before. In fact, we've been almost exactly here before. And it surprised me to find it so late in Abraham's life. You know, this is 25 years after we met him and he's become, you know, the prophet of God and, and God's chosen person, the, the, the symbol of faith in the Bible. And I could see week one and two when we, when we ran into this before. I could see that. But here we are, week 11 in our series, way down the line, 20-some years later. How are we still doing the same thing? Another way of asking that question is, why do stupid people do stupid things? You know, I don't know. Why do you? Why do I? Don't we always end up coming back just like this? Just like the, the Bible says. By the way, Proverbs, when I first read Proverbs, I thought there's this wise man walking through Proverbs and there's this foolish man walking through Proverbs and the proverb writers is talking about them. You understand this is us, right? Sometimes we're wise and sometimes we're foolish. That's the same guy. It's me. It's you. And so he's saying, you know, sometimes here's what it's like. You're foolish and we turn to your foolishness. And he says, you know what I see? I see it looks just like a dog returning to its own vomit. And I know some of you guys are getting grossed out. It's kind of like, you know. That's the most disgusting story I ever heard. I can't believe this is even in the Bible, right? But I love the picture that it presents. Because, by the way, anybody who owns dogs know this is true. Your dog throws up in your house, you got to get him out of the room so you can clean it. You know, he'll try to help you. Um, true story. So, so this is true. But why is it that we keep coming back to the same old stuff that didn't work before? And, and you, you sometimes will do it, and later on you say, you even say that to yourself, I can't believe I did that. How did I get there? And speaking of Abraham, this is what happens with him. So we're going to pick up the story from where we, ha- where we left off last week. Now, last week, where we left it off, uh, God had told him, hey, after 25 years of waiting, it's going to happen. You and Sarah are finally going to have a child. In fact, when I come back to see you this time next year, you already have a child. So that's like pretty quick, right? Uh, because, you know, it takes nine months to get a child. Um, although I've heard some women say they've been pregnant for three years. It's really nine months, you know, it just seems like three years. So if it's nine months to get a child and they're going to be done in a year, you know, Abraham and Sarah are going to have to get busy because it's going to be, you know, just to work out the, work out the time. So it's going to happen soon. So you would think the next chapter after that would be maybe, you know, a big feast, a big festival, you know, maybe picking out names or something. Maybe Sarah's, well, I'm going to start knitting booties or something, you know, that would be related to this. Instead, when you get to the next chapter, the very next chapter, you see this. Now, Abraham journeyed from there south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now, that's in Abraham's day. That's what these lands were called. Later on, the Bible referred to him a different name. This is the land of Philistine. In other words, they left the promised land. They don't tell you why. He just leaves. The first time in 20-some years, he packs everybody up and he leaves the promised land. And we don't know why. We can't possibly understand why. Get us to die. She's going to die over there. Have some water, too. They left the promised land. Why in the world would they leave the promised land? 
Now, the first time they left the promised land, we saw that uh, he was afraid because of the famine. That was right after he got there. Abraham gets there, the famine comes, he goes, I got to go, and he leaves, he runs off to Egypt. But that was before he had the faith that he has now, right? Why do he leave now? Nothing bad happened. It doesn't say that another famine happens. Now, there's a couple things we have to understand. First of all, uh, Abraham is basically a shepherd. He's a very successful shepherd with 300 and some servants working for him. But the thing about sheep and goats is you have to move them around, right? Because they eat up all the grass, you have to move to someplace else. And so it was very common to kind of migrate a little bit. But this is a different migration. He's going over the hill and leaving the land. Why? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I have a theory. And this is what I consider a perfect biblical theory, and here's why. It can't be proven, it can't be disproven. So it's a perfect theory. But I think it has to do with the way Lot ended. And this is coming back, calling back to last week's sermon a little bit. But, you know, God was going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot was living. And he said, uh, he was actually talked out loud so everybody could hear him. He said, should I tell Abraham why I'm going? Okay, I'll tell Abraham why I'm going. I love that God does that, you know, kind of cue everybody in on what he's thinking. He says, I need to tell Abraham because he's going to be a great man and an ancestor of many people. And he has to learn how to teach those ancestors to be my friend the way he's my friend. He's got to teach them how to have a friendship with God. So I need to tell him what I'm about to do. And then he turns and he says to Abraham, I'm going to go down to Sodom because I've heard it's wicked and evil. And I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do when I get there. Well, Abraham knows it's wicked and evil. And he knows full well what God's going to do when he sees that wickedness. He's going to destroy it. And so then Abraham turns to this big barter guy and he barters God down. He says, you know, well, if, there's, if there's righteous people there, though, you wouldn't destroy the whole city. Remember that story? And he goes all the way down to 10 people. That was what they finally settled on. The deal was he got God to agree if they could find 10 righteous people there that he would not destroy the city. And uh, they agreed to that and then he leaves. And so now after that, you know, we, we see Abraham goes to bed, but the angels go on to Sodom and we see what happens there, really evil, wicked stuff. And so the angels tell Lot, get your family, get out. This place is getting destroyed. And they're running for their lives. And um, the Bible is going back now to last, last week's sermon, but, but the Bible, as they're running away, the sun was rising up over the earth and Lot sees Zor where he had fled. And the Lord, uh, what happens is he sees Zor in his distance and he says to the angel, can I, can I run there? He said, yeah, go ahead, go ahead and run there. So he goes to a, to a city adjacent, but far enough away. But the interesting thing is Lot wasn't running towards Abraham. That's one of the saddest things in the Bible, I think. Abraham loves this kid. He's his nephew. He's not his son. He's his nephew, but he's raised him like his own child. He loves him. He's taken care of him. He's rescued him before. But when Lot's in trouble, he doesn't think of running back to Abraham. And Abraham's close. We know that because he can see Sodom from his tent. He's close. Why doesn't he run back? I think it tells us a little bit about Lot. I think Lot knew what he was doing was wrong, and he didn't want to face Abraham. But we don't know why. We saw him run away. And as he ran away, the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire. It was always the other way when I was taught as a kid. It was fire and brimstone. Remember that? It was fire and brimstone from the Lord came out of heaven. He overthrew those cities, all the valley, all the inhabitants of the cities, and all of what grew on the ground. He just destroyed it, scorched earth. Just rained fire down on it until it was all gone. And there was nothing at all left. So that's the scene that Abraham sleeps through because it's far enough away he can't see it. But the next morning he does. Abraham arose early in the morning and 
came out and looked at the place where he had stood before the Lord. So he's remembering. This is where I had the conversation. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward the land of the valley, and he saw smoke ascending like the smoke of a furnace. So here's, here's my belief. I don't think Abraham knew Lot got out. Because the deal was, find ten righteous men and you won't destroy it. That was the deal. That's what he pitched. That's what he pleaded with God. He wakes up in the morning, he sees the ashes. Tell him, what does that tell him? Well, there weren't ten righteous people. I don't think he knows, knows that Lot survived. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us. The Bible tells us why God saved him. He said, when God destroyed the cities, he remembered Abraham and sent Lot out when he destroyed them. So because of God's friendship with Abraham, it extended to saving Lot's life. But it never tells us that God came back and tells Abraham. I believe that when Abraham stood in front of Lot and begged God, if he can just find 10 righteous people, don't destroy the city. He had in his mind what God had just said. He says, you're going to be a great ancestor. You've got to teach people how to be my friend. And, and because I have lots of blessings to give them, but they have to be friends with God. And I believe Abraham thought, I haven't done a good job of that. I've taught him a lot about God. Clearly, he knew who God was. He knew who the angels were. He knew things, but he never knew how to develop that friendship. And I believe Abraham was planning on going to visit Lot as soon as the angels had passed. But now it's too late. He looks and he sees the fact that he has failed his family. And I don't know if any of you ever felt that, but I think a lot of parents have. At some level in their life, like I let my kids down, I let my wife down, I let my husband down, something. You're like, man, and that's a very, very hard place to be. It's even worse when it's irreparable. I let Lot down, I didn't teach him what I should have taught him, and now he's dead. See, I believe he left the promised land because just looking at what used to be where Lot lived was too hard for him. And so he said, I need a break. Feel like you need a break from God? Have you ever been so discouraged and kind of so depressed? Oh, parents, you've been through baby dedications, christenings, you know how it's a blur, you can't remember it. This is a blur, but this one line stuck out. He said this, God's hands are always working over our lives and occasionally he lets them linger long enough that you catch a glimpse. I think that's pretty accurate. You know, God's hands are always working in your life. He said every now and then he'll slow it down enough for you to see it, but it's always there. He did this amazingly gracious thing to Abraham. After he let Abraham play the game of the negotiator and kind of probably was amusing him, he, he did what he, he promised. He didn't say he would do, but he did. Out of the promise to Abraham, he saved Lot. Now Lot, just from there, doesn't do well, but God saves him. Not because of Lot, not because Lot deserved it, but out of his love for Abraham. And we have to understand that, that sometimes God's working in our lives even when, when we are discouraged. Even when we're at our most discouraged in our lives, God's already at work. And, and we have to understand who God is in order to understand that because it doesn't even make sense to us. But the thing that just amazed me as I read this scripture was the next part of this verse. That was verse 1, Genesis 21. Let me get you 22, 20, uh, 20 verse 2. So Abraham journeyed down into what's now Philistine and Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. She's your who? She's your sister. Houston, we have a problem. And haven't we actually seen this horror story before? Like this is like week, going back to week two in this series where he went into Egypt and said to Sarah, look, you're so beautiful that if they see you, they're going to kill me and take you off of me. So say you're my sister. 
and it works. Pharaoh literally takes her to his harem, right? And, and, and Abraham's miserable because he's watching the woman he loves going to be married to another man, and he can't even leave. He's stuck there to watch this whole thing unfold. And God's plan shot because Sarah was supposed to be the mother of all these nations through Abraham. And everything's ruined and God has to step in and save them. Now that was a long time ago. That was 20 some years ago. 20 some years later, can't we have learned our lesson? You know, by now, can't we say? Can't we say, you know, I think I got this now. I think I understand. No, no. Why does he keep doing this? Why do we? We end up moving back to things we've done before that have almost wrecked our lives that God has saved us from. And oh, there we go again. What's the deal? Why do we keep doing that? Well, there are actually reasons why we keep doing it. But one thing before I leave verse two, I want to point out. The king of Gerar sent and took Sarah for his wife. Now, folks, she's like 90 some years old at this point. That's a babe. I mean, when you're looking so good, the kings are still taking you at age 93 or whatever. Uh, and I mean, I understand that aging was different in that time than now. But man, I actually, the, actually, the, I think what's going on here is this. And this is, again, just my theory. God told them that they're going to have a baby in less than a year, right? Now, this is not an immaculate conception. This is Abraham and Sarah are going to have a baby in a natural way. And before we're told that, we are told that neither one of them can anymore do that, right? There have not been any conjugal visits in that tent for some time. They can't. Physically, they can't. And in fact, the Bible calls uh, Abraham's flesh as good as dead. And, and Sarah refers to herself as old and worn out. And it's clear that she's past menopause already. But yet they're supposed to not only have a baby, they're supposed to make a baby. And I believe God is actually making them younger. I think from the moment he said that, I think they actually start growing younger, which I don't know what that's like, but it, it sounds cool. I'd like to try it sometime. They actually start growing younger. They would have had to because they had parts of their body that weren't working anymore that needed to start working again. So I think there's some kind of a glow on, on uh, Sarah at this point as she's getting younger and probably pretty fast because they have to have that baby in three months in order for God's prophecy to be true. Because that's what I think is going on. She must have been, there must have been something really special, a glow about her as she's getting younger every day. That would just be incredible. Whatever, the king takes her into his harem just like the king did way back when. But before we get onto that story again, I want to come back to this question, why does he do this? Why do he do it? It doesn't say he's scared this time. Why did he do it? Why did he fall back in this move that, didn't, that almost wrecked everything? And the other question is, why do we? And I believe that there's a reason why. And, he, and the reason why is this, that um, the devil has these really good tools, two of them, and he uses them. And they're called discouragement and fear. Now, to put this in, they, they always go together. They always go together. To put it in kind of modern language, uh, fear and discouragement are ride and dies for each other. They're always together. They're always together. And what God, what, the, what Satan will do is he'll first get you discouraged. And there could be a lot of things that discourage you. It could be something about you. You know, look, look, Abraham, you know, you failed lot. Why aren't you a loser? You know, or it might just be discouraged you about God. Can you believe God just destroyed that whole city and lot and everybody inside of it? And so you start, mm, you know, get a little bit discouraged there. Whatever you can. Discouragement is the wedge that he uses to pull you away from God. You know, we just talked about it. Have you ever wanted to take a break from God? I'm just a little discouraged. I'm going to take a little break from God. What is that? That's discouragement. Where's it coming from? It ain't coming from God, I'll tell you that, because he never wants you away from him. The devil's using discouragement to separate you from God because now he's going to bring his next one in, 
which is fear. And there's something about the devil. You know, for all the bad things we say about him, he never gets bored. The devil will keep doing whatever works. He doesn't care. He doesn't need to be creative. God's creative. The devil doesn't need to be creative. If this works, I'm going to keep using it. I'm going to keep using it until it stops working. The devil doesn't mind. He'll just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. He's been doing it for thousands and thousands of years to billions of Christians. You think he's going to stop now? He needs to get in here really fast because the child of promise is about to be born. He needs to stop it. So I'll discourage him, I'll push him out, and I'll start driving fear into him. Oh, I guess you're never going to be what you're supposed to be now. And fear takes hold of us and makes us do the stupidest things. You have to understand that if you are in a situation where you're feeling fearful, take a step back, take a deep breath, because fear never comes from the Lord. Ever. God never sends fear to your life. In fact, the Bible tells us that he can't send fear to our life. Uh, in First uh, in, in John, he writes this, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Now, God's perfect love. So when God comes into your life, fear has to leave. God couldn't give you fear if he wanted to. And so in 2 Timothy, when Paul's writing to his protege, he says this, God has not, has not given us a spirit of fear. If you're feeling fearful, it's not coming from God. It's important to recognize two things. First, that you're feeling fearful. And second, well, this isn't coming from God then. So now if you start asking the question, where is it coming from and why? But he has not given us a spirit of fear. What he's given us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. That's what he gives you a spirit of. When the Spirit of the Lord comes in your life, He's bringing power and love and a sound mind. So if God's there, this is what's there. If God's not there, fear's there. And so if you're feeling discouraged and you're feeling fearful, I got to warn you, this is a trifecta. The third one coming is you're going to do something stupid. This is how that works. He drives us away from God. He makes us afraid. And then we do something stupid something that we'll regret, and then he heaps guilt into it, and he keeps mixing this concoction until he can pull you as far away from God as he possibly can. And you will do things that later you say, I can't even believe I did that. This is how. It starts with discouragement, moves into fear, and then we do something stupid. And then over and over and over again, how do we, how do we possibly, possibly get out of this? You know, um, when, when, he, when uh, Abraham does this, and it's all over now because now Sarah is with this other king and now she can't have a child to Abraham. She's, God's getting ready to be able to have a child again, but now it's no good. Abraham's not there. It won't be his child. In fact, the devil's got a good move here because if he can't get that to stop, now he can say, well, we don't know whose child is. She wasn't there for a while. He's got this plan. Right? He's going he's to mess this up somehow. The devil has to stop the promise. So what happens? Well, what happens is God steps in. The same he did in, the same he did in Egypt. He's not going to let his plan get foiled just because Abraham made a mistake. That should be encouraging, by the way. When the father of faith can make a mistake, that's encouraging. But more encouraging is no, bad how, no matter how bad your mistake, it doesn't undo God's plan. God's greater than your mistakes. And, and so God comes to, to Abimelech in a dream. And I love what he says to him. He says, you are a dead man. <laughs> That'll get your attention. And God says, you're a dead man. It says, because the woman that you took is another man's wife. You're dead. You're, you're dead man walking. You're dead. Now, that woke him up, I'm sure. He's probably still in a dream state, but in his dream, he's wide awake now. God just told him that. And he comes up, 
and he's, but he hadn't come near her. He took her to his harem, but he hadn't come near her yet. He said, Lord, would you slay a righteous nation also? He's heard what's happened in Sodom. Word travels fast. He knew what happened. He says, we're not Sodom, God. We're a righteous nation. Would you, would you also destroy us? Because did he not say to me, she's my sister? And the answer to that course, of course is yes. And he, even she who said, did she not say he's my brother? They lied to me. I didn't know. And, and he says, I, in the integrity of my heart, I can tell you, I have not done any of this. I didn't know she was married. I didn't take a married woman. I had no idea. And then God says, yes, I know. I know you did this with the integrity of your heart, which means you thought you were doing the right thing. For, and because of this, I withheld from you sinning against me. In other words, I've prevented you from sinning because I know your heart. Now, if he doesn't listen to God, bad things are going to happen to him. But God is telling him, I know. I, just want, you, I want you to know how serious this is. But I have prevented you from sinning against me because of your righteousness. And so here's what you're going to do. You're going to restore the man's wife to him, for he is a prophet. Notice that even though he has screwed up again greatly, he has not diminished in God's sight. He's still my prophet, he says. Didn't take that away. Listen, we are who God says we are, period. We are who God says we are. We're not who we think we are. And we're not always who our actions show we are. We're who God says we are. He's the prophet. He says he will pray for you because a prophet's prayers carry much weight with the Lord. And you shall live. But if you don't restore it, I need to know that you and everybody around here is going to die. So he tells him that. And, and so he's going to get up in the morning and he tells everybody, I got a dream about God last night and I'm a dead man walking unless we do this. And everybody's very, very afraid because again, this is not long after he destroyed Sodom. They all know what God's capable of doing. So he goes to Abraham and says, what have you done to us? What did I do to offend you that you would bring something like this on me? He says, you know, you have done something to me that ought not to have been done. This should not have happened. And then he says something very, very interesting, because it's interesting to me that this king, who's a pagan king, has this clear view of what Abraham has done wrong. He says this. He says, what did you have in view that you could have done this thing? In other words, what were you looking at? when you let this happen? Because it wasn't God. What were you looking at? It certainly wasn't God. If you were looking at God, you wouldn't have been so gripped with fear that you would do this stupid thing. What were you looking at? And I don't think Abraham really knows because he can't really explain why he did what he did. He just says, this is kind of what we got used to doing. When we travel, we just did that. I fell back in my old habits. He has no idea what he did, but the fact was he'd taken his eyes off of God. And, and we know that the Bible tells us over and over and over again not to do that, right? And it's like, uh, and he wouldn't have known this, of course, because this isn't until the New Testament, but he has some, some version of it that God had told him, walk by faith, not by sight. And that kind of the whole mantra of Christianity, walk by faith, not by sight. Something I need to explain about this verse, though, because I think people forget. When the Bible says walk by faith and not by sight, it doesn't mean you're supposed to close your eyes. It only means your faith is supposed to be what determines your action, not your sight. It doesn't mean you ignore and deny things that are going bad in your life. You don't have to shut your eyes. It just means you understand faith is more important. It's like you're going to go across a bridge, right? 
and it's got this, it's got this big metal pipe going, it's a beautifully made bridge, and it's got this nice little handrail, but then the cables, which are supposed to be cables like up, going up and down, they're, they're yarn, you know, like knitted yarn going up and down. And you look at that and you go, those are supposed to be cables. This bridge is not safe. I'm not going to cross that bridge. And you walk away, right? Because you looked at the yarn. And somebody who knows structural engineering goes, well, no, this thing's over-engineered because those pipes are fine, you know? And he walks across with no problem. It's going to support my weight. This is the thing. The word of the Lord is like the structure of your life. And the rest of it's just decoration. It's not that bad things aren't happening in your life. They are. But the question is, where are you looking? Because if you focus on those, you're not focusing on the structure of your life, which is the Lord. It's not that you shut your eyes, it's that your faith is enough to say, when I see this, this is all bad. What I need to now find out is what does God want? Because that's really all that matters. And shouldn't, uh, shouldn't Abraham have known that by now? He's been living faithfully for a long time. You know, at some point, you know, doesn't this happen in your life? Don't you sometimes think that you know, I've heard this many, many, many times, but I'm just not sure I... Uh, I, I, I still don't get it. I'm not quite sure that I have this. You know, I don't quite get this. Uh, maybe you could tell me. This is all throughout the Bible, though. Throughout the Bible, there's verses on this. This is a... I love this in Second Corinthians because it starts out by saying this. Uh, Our troubles are small. Thanks, Paul. Because I don't know, my problems don't seem so small. I'm glad you think they're small. But he goes on, he says, but they're small because they only last for a short period of time. And they're earning you a glory that's going to last forever. It's greater than all of our troubles. So we will not spend all of our time looking at what we can see. Instead, we look at what we can't see. That's weird, huh? Look at what you can't see. But what he's saying is, I'm going to look past what I'm looking at, what, what, what's around me. I'm going to look, look for God. Because we know that what can be seen, what's here on earth, only lasts a little time. But what can't be seen, God, lasts forever. It, it, it's not that I ignore what's here. I'm looking beyond it. My focus isn't on it. I see it. It's just not where my focus is. My focus is on what does God want? And in Hebrews, the writer says this, we know that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things, again, not seen. If you want to see, if, if miracles happen in your life, you understand you have to see beyond what's happening. Because by nature, miracle is something you can't see. And so... By faith, we understand that the universe was actually created by the Word of God. Well, you can't see the Word of God. But your faith says the whole universe was created by it. And what was seen was not made out of things that are visible because it was made out of the Word of the Lord. So if we put all of our focus on what we can see, touch, and feel, and none of our focus on the one who made what we can see, touch, and feel, we've put our focus on the wrong thing because the only thing that matters is God's Word. Abraham screwed up, but he was still a prophet. We know this because God said, it's my prophet. In fact, if you want to get things fixed, he's going to have to pray for you because that's who he is. He's my prophet. He made a mistake. doesn't change anything. God's greater than our mistakes. So we're going to have to understand that if we're going to go there, we have to, we have to understand that we're walking with the Lord for a reason because he's all that matters. The stuff that we see only matters if you focus on it. Again, not saying shut your eyes, not saying you don't have problems. I know some of you, you have problems, so do I. We have problems in our lives, we do. But there's a God beyond our problems. That's our hope. That's what we see. When I was a, when I was a little kid, uh, six, seven years old, uh, the, the room that I slept in, we had these windows that they, they latched, and then they had these, like, these cranks they would open up. 
And if, if you cranked them shut, they didn't completely shut. You had to kind of pull them and latch them. And if you didn't, that would pop back open in the wind. <laughs> so I had that happen one night. I'm, it's winds kicking up and it pops up in the windows and the wind's whistling through. And man, it like, it was shaking. I was sure the whole house was coming down. I was like five. I'm like, oh, I can't. Oh, I'm going to die. I'm all going to die right here, right here. I think I just watched The Wizard of Oz recently or something. So I go running into my dad's room, my poor dad. You know, dad, 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 the house is going to come down, you know. The big bad wolf's out there huffing and puffing. I, it was bad. And he says, nothing's going to happen. I said, Dad, you don't hear it in my room. Because I couldn't hear anything in his room. You know, so you don't hear it in my room. So he gets up out of bed. He comes into my room. He walks over and he clamps the thing shut, right? He turns. He said, that wind's not going to bother you. And I couldn't hear it anymore either, right? But I'm like, but it's still out there. And he says, look at me. I'm telling you, you're safe. And you know what? That worked. I went back to bed and went to sleep because I was looking at my father who said, <coughs> you're safe. And the wind outside didn't matter anymore because my dad at that time, I was five, right? He was the biggest, strongest person in the world. He could do anything. It was my dad. And so it's okay. I'm safe. Why? Because I was looking at my father and I saw my father say, you're okay. You're safe. That's what they're saying, living by faith and not by sight. You look at your father. It's not that stuff goes away. It doesn't. But you look at your father, you realize what he says is what really matters. These things are only temporary. What God says is what matters because he creates with his word. This is what Abraham has to learn one last time before everything starts. One more time, he has to try to be driven by fear and be driven by desperation and be driven by, by everything else. And one more time, he has to have God bring him back and say, you are who I said you are. And you will be who I said you are. I picked you for a reason. Listen, he's picked you too for what he says you are. And nothing you've done so far has messed that up. All you need to do is put your focus back on the one who speaks the words. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you give us a better view of...